0: Welcome to the Pursuit of Health podcast, where we challenge long-standing assumptions, beliefs, and attitudes about what it means to be healthy by exploring new points of view, research, and concepts about health. And in other words, all the topics that everyone's talking and asking about. I'm your host, Doug Cook. In this podcast, I want to encourage you, the listener, to think differently about your own health and health pursuits, and to keep an open mind as we explore diverse perspectives new evidence, and strategies by connecting with thought leaders who are pushing the boundaries in the health sciences. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Doug Cook. And today we have Liz Lipsky, who is a professor and the director of academic development for the graduate programs in clinical nutrition at Maryland University of Integrated Health. And she is the owner of the Innovative Healing Academy and the author of Digestive Wellness Fifth Edition and the Art of Digestive Wellness online course. Dr. Libsky holds a PhD in clinical nutrition, is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition and has two board certifications in clinical nutrition and one in functional medicine. She is on faculty for the Institute for Functional Medicine and the Metabolic Medicine Institute Fellowship Program. She's also on the advisory board for the Certified International Health Coaches and the Autism Hope Alliance. After 30 years of clinical practice, she devotes her time to teaching, writing, and building the field of personalized nutrition. So let's get to the show. So Liz, welcome to the show.
1: It's so great to be with you, Doug. I'm so glad to meet you and meet another kind of kindred spirit here.
0: Yeah, this, we're going to have a great conversation and can tell already. So I really want to tease out everything leaky gut and kind of dispel a lot of the myths. And I'll share some stories about my early Foray into this 22 years ago and how it was met with the so called mainstream media. But before we do that, I'm just wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you became interested. I'm going to say and presume functional integrative health. Is that fair?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So when I was in college, I started studying herbal medicines and I became kind of an aficionado of herbal medicine by learning on my own. And- Taking independent studies while I was in college. And when I got out of college, I started teaching herbal medicines and how to make things out of herbs and how to use them. And and one day as I was teaching, it was really like that light bulb came on in my brain saying, herbs are great, but they're not foundational. What people need is food and a good lifestyle and friends and happiness. And So I started thinking really about nutrition and I sat down in a library and I looked at all the different careers in nutrition and there was dietetics and I'm like, that's not the area I really want to work in. And I looked at research and that wasn't really the area that I wanted to work in, although I'm doing more research these days than than I did back then. And I found a vocational school to get my master's in, which was a box of books and a box of tests. And then they said, do these and then write a thesis. (laughs) It's like, wow, this is so not a master's degree. So I took a bunch of nursing courses and pre-nursing courses. And I interned with a naturopathic physician and an integrated physician for two years, about 20 hours a week. And when I finished, they hired me to be their nutritionist. Kind of shortly after that, I came in contact with Dr. Jeffrey Bland, who was my first real nutrition teacher. And he was moonlighting doing weekend workshops while he was a young buck as an associate professor at the University of Puget Sound. And I started becoming a groupie, and wherever he did anything, I followed him. And he was really the first person who said, There's research here, and you really want to get familiar with the research and you want to understand how to use nutrition. And, you know, I am very much a self-learner. And, you know, a lot of what I've picked up has been from going to conferences and mentoring under the tutelage of people who are much more advanced than I am. And even doing my doctoral work, I went to a regional university, but it was one that was founded on the principle of, okay, you're already mid-career, you know a lot of stuff already. And because I didn't even start it till I was 45. and, And it was like, okay, now take this and put together a doctorate in nutrition the way you would like to see it. So my doctorate in nutrition was very much a doctorate in nutritional functional medicine. And I also was able to put some of those herbal medicines back in there and some of the kind of more spiritual side or energetic healing pieces of, of that as well. And I've been really lucky in my life because, you know, kind of along the way, I've met people who were very influential and who kind of believed in me. I think the first person who ever saw anything important in me was um, Winna Henry, who founded a nutrition organization called IAACN. And I sat for their boards just with my master's degree. She goes, hey, honey, you know, we have a grandfather period and if you can make it down here in a month and sit for these boards and pass them, we'll give you a CCN. Otherwise, you got to go back to school because your master's was kind of like not up to snuff. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's really interesting. And then she said, there's something about you, you know, and why I'm saying this is, at this point in my life, I'm teaching. I'm teaching at a university and I'm working with people who are younger. And, and what I see is people help formulate me and I get to help teach other people and help them be their best self. And I think that, you know, at this point in my life, that's the most important thing to me is really teaching others because I think, you know, we all stand on other people's shoulders. And so people take everything that I know, plus everything that you know, and plus everything that 20 other people know when they go to school, and then they put it all together in their own way and become the leaders in the field. So, you know, I think our stories are important, but they're important in the context of where we sit in the generations. And Mm -hmm. for me, that's one of the things that excites me really is watching what my graduates go on and do a
0: leadership role out in the world. That's a very interesting journey. It's very different from mine, but it's really, you know, to overuse a word organic, but it's really, uh, it really is neat how it was just a confluence, I guess, of right, different people, the right time, the right place, and kind of following your gut, which might be a good segue to this idea of gut, because that's for sure your your area of expertise. And so, Gut health is all the rage. It wasn't 22 years ago when I started, but it is a bit of a vague word or or term like so people talk about like gut health is so important it's important to have good gut health but because it's not standardized are there ways to kind of describe it like are there kind of domains or dimensions or kind of themes what we're striving for when we talk about gut because it's no longer just seen as an organ of elimination right it's not just that root it's so nuanced so i'm wondering if you can help listeners kind of grasp this concept of gut health
1: Sure. Well, the first piece of it to me is that the reason why we eat food in the first place is to nourish every single cell in our body. And so it's really important that, that that process can take place well, and that we can get that nourishment to every single cell. And then as those cells are nourished, then every organ and every tissue in the body is healthier, so if digestion is impaired in any way, then we're not going to feel well. You know, we're going to have poor wound healing or we're going to have poor immune function or we're going to feel tired or depressed. One of the things that I learned a long time ago from Dr. Jeffrey Bland is that, is that some of the first signs of, of malnutrition are, are depression and low energy. You know, so we start thinking about digestion is kind of this river of life I think of it as kind of like a sprinkler hose you know that just kind of goes everywhere into the body and it and it nourishes us so as a nutritionist or dietitian we start thinking about well what do people eat and the first thing is that most people eat terribly although I know the Doug, like when you ask people and, and you say well, so tell me about your diet. And they go, I eat pretty well. Mm-hmm. And then you look at their food diary and they don't really eat pretty well compared to how maybe they could eat, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and what we see from, from current research is that about 70% of what people are eating is ultra processed foods. So I think as nutrition professionals, we have a big job to do in just kind of moving people to eating the right foods. But so often, we're seeing people who eat the right foods and they still don't feel well. And so for me, I look at the basic principles of, of digestion. And these really came from a conversation that I had with Dr. Patrick Hanaway in an airport one day. We were on our way to or, to or from a conference. And he said, you know, it seems to me that there's only five basic mechanisms I think I looked today because you sent me the, the Bischoff paper, mm-hmm. which I found really interesting, those slides. And that was 2011. And I looked today to see, well, when did we first teach this? It was 2009. And we came up with a model called the Dig In model that I want to explain because to me, this is really important in kind of understanding how digestion works. So the D in Dig In stands for digestion. Absorption and really motility. So it's that piece that you were talking about. It's like, how do we do we have enough stomach acid? Did we chew our food well so that that the stomach doesn't have to work so hard to break it down into kind? Did we did we then take that food and do we have enough acid in the stomach to continue that process of protein digestion and to help us to actually absorb minerals. Do we have enough digestive enzymes from the pancreas? And when we have kind of a blunted gut barrier, which we're going to talk about in the gut, when that's blunted, then we don't secrete cholecystokinin. And so the pancreas doesn't get the message to secrete enzymes. So, do we have enough enzymes? Can we actually digest our food, right? And then, can we actually absorb that into the bloodstream so that it can go to the cells? And then, finally, do we have the gut motility to move that out? And think about how many people have irritable bowel syndrome, would be or constipation that's chronic, or diarrhea that's kind of chronic, and so, or both. So we have a lot of gut motility issues, you know, gastroparesis is one and constipation is one, diarrhea is one, there's lots of different ones. So that's the D for the in model. And then that first I in in is intestinal permeability, which is that barrier function that we're going to talk about today, leaky gut. And then the G is the gut microbiome, which is just, oh my gosh, the research on the microbiome and leaky gut is just mushrooming. And so the gut microbiome, we you know, is really responsible for optimizing metabolism overall and for you know producing the right hormones, the right chemical signaling agents. And when it's in balance, we feel pretty amazing. And when it's out of balance, pretty much anything can go wrong. Uh, dysbiosis which is an imbalanced gut microbiome it's been associated with fatty liver and type 1 and type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease and cancers and you know pretty much even things like glaucoma and chronic kidney disease. these are you know our major health issues and they all really have their seeds in an imbalanced microbiome so that's the the G in the dig-in model. And then the next I in the dig-in model is inflammation and immune. And we're seeing a huge rise in inflammatory conditions and autoimmune disease in the culture in general. We've known for over 40 years that pretty much all disease starts with inflammation. And you know, inflammation is a good thing. If you put your hand on a stove, You know, you want to get that pain signal and you want to be able to then go, oh, and the inflammation starts bringing in the healing. But for so many of us, we get stuck in an inflammatory cycle and we're seeing this in the long haulers with COVID right now is that the virus is kind of long gone in a way, but the inflammatory process keeps going on and on and on. And so we have these cytokine storms in people. And so, you know, we're looking for inflammation and immune all through the digestive system. So we can see inflammation in GERD, for example, in heartburn. We can see inflammation in periodontal disease. We can see inflammation in ulcers. We can see inflammation in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease or different types of cancers that can go all the way through the GI tract. So, we want to look at that. And we also want to look at the autoimmune component of GI issues, which we'll talk about when we talk about the gut. And then finally, the last, the N in the dig in model is the nervous system. And the enteric nervous system is critically important as we keep finding out more about the relationship with the gut brain and all the neurotransmitters that are produced in, in the digestive system. And the information that goes from the gut to the brain and back mm-hmm. through the vagus nerve. So that's kind of the model that we use. It's called the dig in model. And I teach about it, and I write about it in um, my book, Digestive Wellness. My whole book is kind of set up that way to really kind of walk people through this. And you know whether you're somebody who's a dietitian or a nutritionist or or somebody who's concerned consumer, this helps kind of, I think, codify it. And, you know, it could be that somebody has leaky gut and inflammation and immune issues. It could be that, that you start seeing and you go, oh, well, this person's not digesting their food. Well, let's start with the D, Mm -hmm. you know? And so as a clinician, that really helps me to start thinking, well, what is the most Obvious place to start working with this person. You know, obviously, if you can't digest your food or you can't eliminate the waste, that's a really important place to start. But sometimes somebody's got raging autoimmune diseases. You know, they might have Graves' disease and lupus and celiac. So then you have to start thinking about well, how do we calm down that inflammation so that the body fire is out so that we can then move forward. So sometimes one of these will pop out at me as a clinician, and sometimes there's a couple that pop out and say, okay, here's where we need to start with this person.
0: I absolutely love this. This is a brilliant model. I'm pulling away from doing counseling. I'm going to do more education. I would have loved this 20 years ago. I would have this 10 years ago when I started kind of focusing more on the gut because it really does break it down. So This is, I guess, I don't want to say it's a systems approach, but like a lot of people don't appreciate, certainly the general public, just because we're not communicating it in this way, certainly through the mainstream channels, that the gut, you know, it is this organ of digestion and absorption. But as you said, there's like the enteric nervous systems built into that. So there's the second largest network of neurons outside of the brain, 80, 70%, 80 to percent, depending on who you read of the immune systems embedded in the gut. So we just think about... You know, if you're eating, it's assumed that you're digesting and absorbing. And unless you've got some annoying symptom like bloating or gas and you're pooping a bit, we assume everything's okay. And and if you're addressing the gut, we don't think about the other players like the nervous system or the gut or inflammation or the health of the microbiota. So I think this is a really amazing, Mm -hmm. as you're explaining it, I just thought this would be so helpful for people to systematically go through if they're assessing somebody's gut issues, while taking into consideration those other players that influence all of that stuff. So that's that's amazing. You came up with that 20 years ago, you said, or 15 years ago?
1: 2009 was when we first presented it. Okay, so, so
0: about 11 so, years ago.
1: Yeah, you know, and Patrick just said, these are the, and I said, this is amazing. I think my role in this was listening when he said it and kind of asking him questions and pulling it out. And then I sat and I went, this is so amazing. And I sat down and I figured out this dig in. I, I sat down, like, how do we codify this and make it? So it was a team effort from the two of us. And we've been teaching it ever since. Yeah,
0: conceptually, it, it just makes perfect sense. Everything falls into place. So... What I wanna pick your brain about is something called leaky gut. Now you say that and everybody loses their, you know what, um, (laughs) (laughs) their shite. But if you Google in PubMed, you know, gut barrier dysfunction, intestinal hyperpermeability, small intestinal hyperpermeability, or some variation like that, I think the last count it's like 12,000 hits. So this is not a fringe topic. This is an established concept. To me, it takes more faith to believe it doesn't exist than to understand it does exist because there's like one cell between the inside of your gut and the bloodstream and the lymphatic system. So, of course, you can have inappropriate permeability. But just to kind of back up, 22 years ago, before I went back to school, and became a dietitian, I had been reading these, what would be labeled as alternative viewpoints, naturopathic kind of perspectives. Leaky gut was certainly being talked about back then. And I remember three preceptors, where I mentioned this word, leaky gut, and the response was, I mean, it was belittlement, dismissive, condescension, and I didn't have the expertise or the knowledge I could do today to kind of basically counter it. Then you fast forward today, and it's really gaining traction and deserving the attention that it deserves, because this is just basic physiology and anatomy. So I'm calling it leaky gut. People don't like that they can just substitute it with gut barrier dysfunction. So for people who don't know, how would you kind of describe leaky gut or if someone, if you were explaining it to somebody, what would you say?
1: Sure. So the small intestine has two functions and it's long, you know, we all have about 22 feet of small intestine and it's kind of that, you know, squiggly hose like thing that that's in the center of our body. And It has two main functions. The first function is to allow nutrients to pass into the bloodstream. And that's how the cells get fed. Its second function is as a barrier to prevent anything that we don't want to come into the bloodstream to stay in that lumen of the small intestine to go in the large intestine and be excreted. And so it has some discernment. And as you said, what happens is that the the cell membrane here of the gut barrier, they're called enterocytes. They're the cells that line the inside of your small intestine and they sit there like this. And some nutrients pass in between the cells like water and some macronutrients Some amino acids and glycerols and things can pass in between. Um, They can kind of open up a little bit and and let things pass. And then a lot of nutrients pass right through the cell into the bloodstream. And so that's what we want. And it's only one cell thick. And these enterocytes get replaced every three to five days. They're brand new. So let's say that you're really stressed at work. And you're working on near a deadline, and you're burning the midnight oil, and you're, you know, not really paying good attention. And at the same time, you're taking aspirin because your knee hurts. And what happens is that you've got so many fires going on that your body doesn't even remake these cells. And so you start getting old cells. These enterocytes get old. And they start pushing away from each other and they don't function as well. And they start letting things that shouldn't be allowed to come through into the bloodstream. And so things like partially digested food molecules come in, or maybe there were some bacteria or fungi that came in with your food, or maybe even a parasite that came in on your food or maybe it was some of the chemicals maybe it was the food dye or the preservatives or maybe some pesticide or maybe some glyphosate from roundup that you sprayed in your yard and that can all come right in and go into the bloodstream and when it does then the bloodstream goes what is this this isn't a nutrient this is glyphosate that's not a nutrient and it doesn't have enzymes to break it down because The bloodstream doesn't have digestive enzymes. And so it starts an immune response in your blood where your body's saying, huh, who's here? This molecule from the hamburger you ate, it's too big. I can't digest it. So it must be garbage. And so we must have to have an immune response to clear out this garbage from the bloodstream. And it's it's a funny thing because we see so much of this leaky gut. So that's kind of the basic way that it works. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that make it worse are stress, toxins, eating a highly processed, refined diet, drugs that we take. So for example, if people are taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like Tylenol or ibuprofen, those are going to, over time, create leaky gut. If you are taking steroids or using them like prednisone long-term, that's going to cause leaky gut. If you're taking immunosuppressants, those affect gut, the gut lining. If you are um, women taking birth control pills, that can affect the gut lining and so many different drugs can. And then, you know, pathogens like fungi, like Candida albicans, actually, instead of just kind of sitting gently on this gut barrier, they actually bore holes in it and and just go right through. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways that we can have this. And so uh, the contemporary lifestyle really is in favor of having this leaky gut barrier. And when we have the leaky gut barrier, then we have more inflammation, more immune problems.
0: Yeah. So for to summarize, I guess, so there's a single layer of cells between the inside of the gut and the bloodstream and the lymph system, et cetera. And so these cells have to do double duty. As you said, they have to allow things to come in, the things that we want, and then keep the things out that we don't want to enter the body. And then there's a lot of things that can disrupt that barrier. So one way I've thought about it, and I don't know if this makes sense to you, is if you think of a a chocolate layer cake or layer cake, there's kind of three layers. There's kind of a mucosal layer. So you've got that nice thick mucus barrier and the microbiota kind of, I think, near the top. Then we've got the physical line of Cells. And then right behind that, we've got all that's where all the immune system is to try and fight things that come in. So there's these kind of three layers that kind of protect us. And so, as you're saying, all of these lifestyle things, stress, certain medications, food additives, they can disrupt, I guess, annoy any one of those things, right? It can cause bacterial imbalances or affect the mucosal layer. I know NSAIDs are really bad for that. Then the physical cells themselves, and then anything that angers the immune system behind it, can just set off this firestorm. I guess.
1: Yeah, you know the one thing that I forgot too is alcohol. You know, just having a yeah. few drinks a couple nights a week can also really be disruptive to the barrier. So again, you know, our lifestyles are are conducive to opening it. And you know, when you look, I wish I could show you a picture, but If you look at what's known about the biochemistry of this mechanism, we have, you know, as I said, these cells are supposed to sit really tightly. So imagine that that there's inflammation. Well, when we get inflammation, let's say that I hit my hand with a hammer, you know, it swells. And so that immediately kind of pushes the cells apart. So when there's inflammation, they get pushed apart. And we have mechanisms that are called... Occludin and clodins, and there are many of them, and they're there to like keep this tight so things can't come through. And then we also have one molecule called zonulin, and zonulin is like a little gate, and it goes, Oh, let's just open up so you can come through. And there are so many mechanisms, and when you look at the redundancy of the mechanisms that are there, you know that physiologically, this is really important that we keep these tight because we have about six different molecules that keep it tight and only one that opens it
0: up. Yeah, so the goal, of course, is to reduce the things that are going to cause this to open up and then take in those things that support all of that functioning, including things that support the production of these like they're proteins, aren't they, that keep the cells together? So you kind of outlined a whole bunch of different things that contribute to it. Stress, medications, antibiotics you didn't mention, but I know those are some of the worst. Alcohol, those NSAIDs or things like ibuprofen, Bioxx, I don't even know if that's on the market anymore, but naproxen, those kinds of things are really bad. So those are for sure some risk factors for it. Are there other kind of things that people should be on the lookout for?
1: Those are the main things, you know, major stressors. I think right now, almost everybody is more stressed than they normally are. And we all handle that in really different ways. Surgery can definitely have huge effects on gut barrier function. Another really interesting thing is over-exercising. They've done studies of people who run marathons and triathletes and What they find is that for the first couple days after somebody does that kind of really long endurance exercise that they have leaky gut, but if they're healthy, it just bounces right back. And so, you know, again, you know, this does replace itself every three to five days. So the body wants to heal if you give it the right environment.
0: So if under ideal conditions, maybe we heal or people aren't thinking it's a as deal as um, it might be made out to be like, what's wrong with taking some Advil and everyone's stressed and they might feel run down, but they don't really see something immediate happening. Like, you know, if they fell down and broke their bone, I mean, that feedback's immediate. So long term, how does leaky gut contribute to poor health? Like, so what are some of the big ones?
1: The first things that I think about when I think about leaky gut is I think about food sensitivities and environmental sensitivities. Then I start thinking about skin. Does somebody have eczema? Do they have psoriasis? Does somebody have migraine headaches? What's their lung function like? Because the lungs have its own barrier function. And when that barrier function is compromised, we see more allergies and more asthma. We see pancreatitis and chronic pancreatitis. We see non-alcoholic fatty liver. We see kidney stones. You know, all of these things are are associated with it. And we also see, I think, like leaky gut, leaky brain. So we can see depression and anxiety and, you know, other mental health changes. And then we see autoimmune conditions. It's really interesting you know, when you look at the research on autoimmune disease, whether it's lupus or it's MS or it's Graves' disease or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, there's almost always leaky gut or this dysfunctional barrier is one of the preconditions for setting that up. And so, you know, this is as you said before like this is a systems theory approach Mm -hmm. but this barrier is so critically important to our overall health and it's something that we didn't really know that much about you know even 30 years ago
0: yeah so i've read a bunch of stuff that you've pointed out a lot of Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, I know there's a big connection with bacteria getting into the blood system and then setting up shop into the liver and then producing, I don't know, I think they produce alcohol-type compounds that can contribute to the, the fatty liver development. A big one that's really, I think, really coming to the front, to the fore, I guess is the expression, is this idea of um, autoimmune disease because there's this idea that we have a genetic component, and then we've got some kind of environmental trigger. But then this third dimension is some kind of antigen that's coming in through the gut to set off this immune response that attacks these cells wherever wherever it is attacking, for example. And a classic one, I guess, is celiac disease, right? So it's not enough to have the genes, and it's certainly not enough to eat gluten but anyone can develop it at any time and it's just for some reason it's just this perfect storm and i guess it could be a combination of of hits maybe or just the perfect storm where there's just too much at the at the wrong time and so i don't know if you have anything to comment on that
1: yeah i mean i first heard that model from dr alessio Fasano, who's one of our you know premier celiac researchers i have a little crush on him (laughs) anyway he's too young for me anyway so, I'm married, anyway, so, you know, he's a brilliant researcher and he came up with this kind of triangle theory. It's like, as you said, like about 35% of us have the right genetics to develop celiac disease, but only 1% of us develop celiac disease. So how come the other 34% don't, right? And pretty much people eat bread all over the world pretty much every culture has its pancake and its sandwich and its bread or flatbread or whatever, you know, so you've got two of the three pieces, but without a leaky gut, you don't get those messages coming into the bloodstream that activate the immune system, which is what I was trying to say before. And I think that there's a fourth thing, which you alluded to, that kind of the perfect storm is kind of like, I think there needs to be one more kind of insults, to you know because a little bit of leaky gut might not do this but what can what do you do that like pushed you over the edge you know maybe you were in a car accident or and it wasn't a big deal but you got really upset about it the immune system is also really interesting I learned from different teachers one of the main ones Dr. Bob Browntree, is is that the immune system is kind of like a parent. I don't know if you have kids. My kids are grown. But but it's like if you yelled at your kids every time they annoyed you, or if I yelled at my husband every time like he irritated me, it wouldn't make for a really great relationship, right? And the immune system is like that. The immune system is hugely tolerant. It kind of goes, yeah, okay, you're bugging me, but okay, you're not dangerous to me. And the immune system really, I think her name's Polly Massinger. She came out with this idea of it's a dangerous situation that the immune system responds to. And it has to have these dangerous signals before it really activates. And so, you know, the leaky gut is one of those danger signals. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. We have put a lot of work into keeping this thing and keeping things out of your bloodstream that don't belong there. And now we are having dangerous signals. And so leaky gut is, you know, really a key component to this autoimmune response. And in pretty much every single autoimmune condition, we, there are like at least 80 of them known and all of the ones that I've looked at the research, there's research on increased intestinal permeability.
0: That's amazing. And so, how would somebody, like, how would you go about it? Or what are the kind of the big bird's eye view ways of determining whether or not leaky gut is present? Because I know in research settings, they can do these tests where you swallow a particular compound of sugar. And if it comes out in the urine, when it shouldn't, that can indicate leaky gut. But we don't really, I mean, maybe there's more tests that are used in practice. But How would you go about assessing for the presence of leaky gut?
1: Okay. So the first thing I would just personally, that test has been around a long time. It's called the lactulose mannitol test. And it's a really good test. It's been used for research for over 30 years. And there are different lab companies like Genova, Diagnostics that offer it. And as a nutritionist, I couldn't order it because it involves two compounds that somebody makes a drink out of and they swallow it. And one of those is mannitol and the other one's lactulose. And lactulose is a prescription substance. So as a nutritionist, it wasn't something that I could do easily. So I got really good at just kind of looking at signs and symptoms in people. Does this person have a lot of fatigue? Does this person have food sensitivities? Do they have environmental sensitivities? Do they have skin issues? Do they have migraines? Do they have fatty liver? Do they have type 2 diabetes? Do they have cardiovascular disease? Like looking at all these different ways, you know, um, has somebody had cancer and they've had chemo and radiation, which can also cause at least temporarily leaky gut, but set off a whole kind of condition where it doesn't go away. Do they have bacterial overgrowth or, you know, so... For me, I got just kind of good at saying, well, let's try to support you and not do testing, okay? But the lactulose mannitol test is a really interesting one because mannitol is a really, really tiny molecule. And so you would assume that it's going to get into the bloodstream and you're going to see it in your urine. Lactulose is a really huge molecule. And so you're going to accept that it's not going to go into the bloodstream. So if you start seeing a lot of lactulose in the bloodstream, then you say, oh, this person's got leaky gut. If you don't see any any mannitol or not much mannitol, it's like, wow, not only they have leaky gut because there's lots of lactulose, but they also have malabsorption because they can't even get this in. Uh,
0: Okay.
1: You know, So it tells you a lot, it gives you a lot of information. So that's kind of the test that's, been used for a long time. There are now kind of newer tests, and they're looking at one of the other things that I didn't really mention is that we have these bacteria that get into the bloodstream. They're mostly gram-negative bacteria, and they produce something called lipopolysaccharide. And when I first heard about that, it's like, well, lipopolysaccharides—like we eat those all the time. It just means a fatty sugar molecule. Right? Mm -hmm. And so they're parts of food, but when they're produced by bacteria, what they do is they produce this molecule called zonulin, which opens up those tight junctions between the cells and it's like a gate that opens them up. And so people are starting to measure these lipopolysaccharides in urine and in blood. And we know that they're inflammatory. And we also have some really interesting research on like elevated lipopolysaccharides in people with cardio, it really boosts up risk of diabetes and heart disease. So, you know, again, looking at it more systemically. So there are companies who are actually measuring these lipopolysaccharides. And we see them elevated in people with autism, cardiovascular disease, inflammatory bowel disease fatty liver, as we've talked about already, Parkinson's, chronic fatigue. So anyway, so people are measuring those. And I think that they're getting more and more easily available. So you can get them through some of the functional medicine labs, but you can also get some of them through um, looking at stool testing. And even I think some of the big labs are, are looking at these like Quest and LabCorp. But you'll start seeing them in a lot of stool tests that are done by companies like Genova and Doctors Data and Microbiome Labs and, and others. Mm-hmm. You know, So we're starting to see people actually looking to measure these. Other tests that people are looking at is they're actually measuring zonulin or they're measuring zonulin antibodies. And so zonulin, as I said, you know, it's that thing that opens up the gates. And there's only a few things that we know that really open up, zon- you know, produce zonulin. One of them is these lipopolysaccharides from bacteria. And the other thing is if you have celiac disease and you eat gluten, then zonulin gets produced to just open these junctions between the cells wide open. Some labs are also starting to measure occludin, which is one of those molecules that keeps it stuck really tight. And so we're seeing more and more labs doing these things. I didn't look this morning to see if if LabCorp or Quest are offering these, but I think that they are in some forms. So again, you know, like you, oh my, like one time I got just like blasted by somebody who accused me of being a quack because I was talking about leaky gut and again that was probably around the same time you were being accused you know and I'm like yeah but Newsweek interviewed me about this because they thought it was real you know and when I look in PubMed there's thousands of papers I think if you just look at intestinal permeability by itself there's over 50 or 60,000 papers
0: yeah yeah, so there are some tests. I, I'm in Canada, so I know you uh, they can do finger prick blood tests for zonulin. I think some are moving towards antibodies. I didn't know about the occludins, so that's interesting. And then failing that as a clinician, you're going to do you're, you can look at somebody which research has clearly demonstrated certain conditions have leaky gut like verified documented research through these mannitol tests and and other things. So if someone comes in with a type one diabetes, it's an autoimmune disease, and they're having these symptoms, you can make the assumption that they have it and then I guess move to kind of match the symptoms with the risk factors and then, you know, introduce some strategies to help deal with what you know is going on below the surface. So. With that, I'm just wondering, do you have any favorite foods that have been shown to help reduce leaky gut insofar as building up the mucosal lining or helping the gut heal itself, whether that's production of those proteins that keep the tight junctions, the cells bound together, reducing inflammation, or even some natural health products, you can just free flow and wing it?
1: <laughs> sure. I you know I just want to say to Cyrex labs, which I'm sure you can get in Canada, um, they're probably the most sophisticated of the antibody testing because they look at occludin and they look at zonulin and they look at lipopolysaccharide antibodies, which means not just that they're there, but that you have a reaction to them. Mm. So... Foods, favorite foods. So first of all, my most favorite food for doing this is Jewish penicillin, chicken soup, (laughs) right? I can say that because I'm Jewish. So anyway, chicken soup and bone broths in general, they have so many nutrients in them that are gut healing and bone healing and connective tissue healing. I wish that we had a lot more research on it. But like the other day for Christmas, I roasted a chicken. And then immediately I made bone broth out of the bones and the skin and whatever else was left. And it made like this delicious broth that felt so nurturing and healing. And it is. Um, Sally Fallon and Kayla Daniel wrote a wonderful book on healing broths. Then other foods that I think are really important ones are stop eating all the highly processed foods. Because they're inflammatory and they don't help. The more vegetables that you can eat, the better off your body is. And then we have like some specific foods that are like demulcents. Demulcents create mucus. And so, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. So, kind of one of our big foods would be something like okra. And then we have something like licorice tea or slippery elm tea or slippery elm and licorice tea because they're very soothing to the mucous membranes. And we have so so much research on licorice and its ability to kind of heal stomach ulcers and other things because it makes kind of this mucusy membrane. But the downside of licorice is that if you have high blood pressure, it can spike it. You want to check your blood pressure if you're going to start drinking tons of licorice tea. And they do make it with the glycerin taken out. So that it won't do that. It's a specific component in it that affects aldosterone, you know, and I think for people who have a lot of GI issues, sometimes they need to do a really kind of gut healing diet, which is they may for a while need more well-cooked foods. So those vegetables cooked really well. There's kind of a digestive fire that's not that strong in some people. And so that can be really helpful. And then you know I use a lot when I I'm not in practice anymore. But when I was in practice, I used a lot of kind of specialized diets to help people. And I would use a comprehensive elimination diet and that comprised of things like eat vegetables and fruits, and eat non-gluten containing grains, and eat seeds, and eat chicken and fish and lamb and bison and and take out legumes for a while, take out alcohol and sugar and gluten and dairy and eggs, you know, and clean up your diet. I know that when you were in practice, we saw this all the time. And I saw it within two weeks of somebody going on a diet that really kind of cleaned them out and gave them kind of a new fresh start that people can do a lot of healing. You'd see arthritis going away and you'd see depression lifting and you'd see energy improving and sleep better and, you know, skin starting to clear. So I think, you know, the big three foods that are infl- for kind of inflammatory things are sugar, eggs, gluten-containing grains, and dairy products. And over and over, we see that those are kind of the biggest culprits. So then in terms of supplements, the number one, number one supplement that I think of for healing leaky gut gut is an amino acid called glutamine. And why? It's because the digestive system is not like the brain and our muscles that run on glucose. The digestive system, the small intestine, what it needs for maintenance, repair, and energy production is glutamine, that's its main power substance. And a lot of the early worst research came from a man named Dr. Doug Wilmore. And he did a lot of work in this area demonstrating that you could really heal the gut, but also help with systemic issues. In fact, there was just a paper on glutamine and people with um, heart failure showing that it helps prevent heart failure. And why? Because glutamine is the most abundant. I like to think of it as the rogue kind of bachelor amino acid. He's single and he's out there and he's looking for all kinds of things to do. And one of the things that glutamine as a rogue amino acid, it's a single amino acid. It's the most abundant amino acid that you find just kind of out there by itself, you know? And so. Glutamine is great for muscles. When we're stressed out, we use glutamine in our muscles, which causes fatigue. And also it causes this leaky gut. And so it's the number one thing that I think about using. And every once in a while, somebody have a negative reaction to it, but mostly not. And I'll use it in doses, recommend it in doses of Anywhere from like three grams a day, 3,000 milligrams a day, all the way up to maybe 20 grams a day. Dr. Doug Wilmore and Dr. Judy Schaber did research in men with AIDS and they who were wasting away, and they found that using 40 grams a day helped them build muscle back. Also, they used really high doses in people who had short bowel syndrome.
0: That's a great list of foods there. I know, you know chicken soup seems like a folk remedy, but we now know there's got a lot of good stuff in the, in the broth like collagen and all the proteins that go with that. And then the other thing is I think people like a really good starting ground, as you've mentioned, is just doing everything that you can to eliminate all the things that irritate the gut right? Judicious use of medications. What I find interesting as a dietitian is there's a whole list of food ingredients that have this label GRAS, G-R-A-S, which stands for generally recognized as safe. I mean, that's like, what better way to cover your butt (laughs) when something might not be good for you? It's like, well, it's generally recognized as safe. So there's all these things, these food colorings and additives that we now know. There's a couple of great papers on it, how they can cause gut issues. So And then the other thing that you mentioned, I guess it's been repackaged as an autoimmune paleo diet. So it's about getting rid of all the top allergens that you mentioned, really going simple and giving your gut uh, opportunity to heal so just to wrap up i'm wondering where people can go to learn more about this because we really just scratched the surface so where can people learn more specifically about you your work and in addition to your books and then any you have a a great course as well right
1: i do so you can find me at innovativehealing.com and my main book is digestive wellness it's sounds in its fifth edition. And there's also a website, digestivewellnessbook.com where you can download an elimination diet and some other things that I have up there. I teach from Maryland University of Integrative Health and we have graduate programs. We have a master's in nutrition, a master's in nutrition and herbal medicine. We have a post master's certificate in nutrition for clinicians who Kind of want something more. And then I was able to put together a doctoral program, and we've graduated now four, four cohorts from that. So I'm really excited about our DCN program in integrated and functional nutrition. And then I've also put together a course called The Art of Digestive Wellness that has 28 videos, over 40 handouts, and assessment tools that people can use in practice or use personally. And it also has now 11 cooking videos and recipes for all of those um, gut healing foods. And it's been approved for 21 and a half uh, CPEs for, the, um, for dietitians and a minimum of 20 continuing education credits through BANTH and through for CCNs, CMSs, uh, all kinds of nutrition
0: professionals. Yeah, I know it's good. Uh, I know in the U.S. you have to do continuing education units. A little t- it's a little different in Canada. So what I'm hearing is it's a, a great offering for a large swath of, of the uh, the public to people who just want to learn and, and apply this to the, for themselves, but also to account towards their education.
1: Yeah, it's called the Art of Digestive Wellness and it can be found at com. And I kept the pricing on it low because I want people to get that information. And then the final thing, if people are just curious about like their own health, I have a questionnaire called the digestive health appraisal questionnaire, and people can download that. It gives you the ability to look at 15 different areas. Like, could I have a gluten issue or could I have leaky gut or could this be my liver gallbladder or, Am I digesting my food? Do I need enzymes or different things? And so that you can download at um, dhaq.info, D-H-A-Q.info.
0: So it's a great kind of preliminary screening tool to get people to kind of start thinking about those things.
1: Yeah, and yeah. clinicians use it a lot too. You know, I use it in teaching as well. And I found three things, main things that people discover. The first is the best yeah, it doesn't look like I have a lot of digestive issues. (laughs) Or, wow, if I had done this a few years ago, it would have been really bad, but I can see all the improvements that have happened from all the changes that I've made in my diet and my lifestyle. And so they get that validation. And the third is like, oh boy, I never realized that this could be an issue and I have places that I need to work on. So, it's been really useful for people, and a lot of clinicians are using it in their practice too.
0: Yeah, that's great, because sometimes people, things aren't what they might be fearing that it is, and then sometimes it captures those things that need to be addressed that they may not be. So I want to just thank you very much for your time. I think that was a really great overview. I think people are going to find that there's a lot in here to pick apart, and I would encourage everyone to check out your contact information, your websites, and again, just wanted to thank you for your time today, Liz.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. And I think what I'll also do is send you a handout that I made on, you know, supplements and things that we can get so that you can post that.
0: Yeah. So this will, uh, if you're listening, anyone's listening to the directory, they can also find all this content on my website, RD, because I have a place for the podcast. So all of this, these links and these, this handout will be posted to that as well.
1: Thanks so much for having me today.
0: You're welcome. Thanks. Hit subscribe and get ready to expand your nutritional world, your perspective, and gain confidence in a way that you didn't know you could. And be sure to check out my website, DougCookRD.com.